If there is any question that the world is unbalanced, consider that the world at large has rejected morality, rejected absolute truth, rejected human nature, and rejected reasoning. It philosophizes that reality is something created by language. However, since language changes, then what is real for a particular group of people may not be the same for another group of people. Thus, what is true for one person is not necessarily true for another person. This postmodern ideal believes that creeds, dogmas, and doctrinal statements are too militant and are the cause of religious violence in the world. Adherents have proposed that theology should be non-confessional, non-dogmatic, pluralistic, and tolerant. And it has created new standards for morality such as moral relativism, cultural relativism, situation ethics, and behaviorism. Now, moral relativism is a morality not based on any absolute standards. It teaches that truth is based on variables such as situations or feelings. Those who adhere to moral relativism push the issue of tolerance. The moral relativist claims that by enforcing an absolute moral code on someone is intolerant and therefore wrong. Now, let me state that this position of moral relativism is untenable for three reasons. First, Evil should never be tolerated. If there are no moral standards, the result is going to be anarchy. Second, this argument for moral relativism is self-defeating. The fact that the moral relativist does not tolerate the intolerance of a moral absolute undermines their position. Refusing to be tolerant to the intolerant sets them in a position of establishing an absolute. And third, the moral relativist cannot explain why someone should be tolerant. Then there's cultural relativism. Cultural relativism is a morality based on whatever a particular cultural group approves as right or wrong. Thus, culture becomes the dominant determiner of moral or immoral. Now, such a position is fatally flawed. First, there are at any given time many competing cultural groups. Second, with so many competing cultural groups, each determining their morality, it's impossible to condemn one group over another. For example, according to cultural relativism, the extermination of the Jews under Hitler was acceptable because the Nazis made the decisions within the context of their cultural worldview. Situation ethics. Situation ethics is a morality based on the context of a situation instead of an absolute moral standard. Where moral relativism holds to no right or wrong, situation ethics uses the needs of the given situation to determine what is right or wrong. Adherents of this view claim that all laws and rules and principles and ideals and norms are only contingent, only valid, if they happen to serve love. In other words, as long as love is the goal, the end justifies the means. For example, if an individual is married to an invalid, then it would be loving for them to have an affair because their needs were unable to be met by their spouse. Situation does, ethics does not hold up in light of who God is. God is good and unchangeable. Situation ethics teaches that a set of circumstances determines morality. However, since God is good, He determines what is moral or immoral, not our circumstances. Second, not only is God good, but God is love, 1 John 4, 8. This love is known as agape love. Agape love is defined as a self-sacrificing love, not a self-serving love. Situation ethics teaches that one does the most loving thing for oneself. Listen, folks, self-love is the antithesis 
of God. And then there's behaviorism. Behaviorism is a morality that is the result of one's genetic makeup, environmental circumstances, or conditioning. This ethical view believes that people are victims of their own circumstances or the victims of forces outside of their control. Therefore, behaviorism says that people are not responsible for their behaviors. Proponents of this view believe that human freedom and human dignity are outdated and should be discarded. Now, Scripture directly opposes the ethical position of behaviorism. Romans 1-3 teaches that people are morally responsible for their behavior and actions. Look, take Adam and Eve, for example. They were created morally good. Genesis 1.27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Yet, Adam and Eve sinned despite genetic perfection. Listen, Adam and Eve were placed in a flawlessly designed garden. Genesis 2.8-9, the Lord planted a garden. He placed the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground, the Lord caused to grow every tree, pleasing to the sight and good for food. Yet, Adam and Eve sinned regardless of environmental perfection. Also consider that Adam and Eve were given specific rewards or punishments for their obedience or disobedience. Genesis 1, 28-30, God blessed them. He said, I've given you every plant yielding seed that's on the surface of all the earth and every tree which is fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. I have given you every green plant for food and it was so. Genesis 2, 16-17, the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may eat from any tree of the garden freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Nonetheless, Adam and Eve sinned regardless of the perfect instrumental conditioning. And that, my friends, is exactly why behaviorism is garbage. It doesn't hold up. So coming back to our theme, we live in an unbalanced world. And as Christians... How do we live balanced lives in the midst of an unbalanced world? Well, what is a balanced life? A balanced life is one in which the believer strikes a balance between doctrine, that is what he or she believes, and deportment, that is how he or she behaves. Too often, Christians are lopsided. They're strong in doctrine or weak in deportment, or they're strong in deportment and weak in doctrine. Some Christians have theological knowledge, but their life is a mess. Let me be clear. Head knowledge, without practical application of God's word, produces hypocrisy. That's how we get hypocrites. They got all this head knowledge, but no application in their life, they're hypocrites. Other Christians are big on living for Jesus, but they reject what the Bible actually says. And let me be clear that rejecting what the Bible says is dangerous because then you end up living for the wrong Jesus. You're living for a Jesus that you've made up. According to Merriam-Webster, to strike a balance means to achieve a state in which different things occur in equal or proper amounts or have an equal or proper amount of importance. So if a believer is going to strike a balance while living in an unbalanced world, then we must learn how to balance both doctrine and deportment. And this balance between doctrine and our deportment can be struck in two ways. First, the balance is struck by studying God's Word. And second, 
the balance is struck by suffering for Christ. So, striking the balance begins by studying God's Word. Let's turn over to Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. We strike the balance first by studying God's Word. Now that term, therefore, in verse 1, Ephesians 4.1, connects what Paul is about to say about the worthy walk or the balanced life back to what he's previously written. Now in Ephesians chapter 1 through 3, Paul taught doctrine, particularly homardiology, the doctrine of sin, soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, and ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church. So by using the term therefore, Paul explains that he taught them doctrine so that they could live balanced lives, so that they could walk in a manner worthy of their calling. You see, my friends, what this tells us is that belief precedes living. Your thinking has to be changed before your conduct changes. You cannot acquire or strike balance if you do not know or understand what Christ did for you. See, a balanced life, living a balanced life in an unbalanced world, is a life that has to be lived in light of our calling. Now, the calling is the call to salvation. Again, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1. I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. That calling is the call to salvation, the clasis. It is the invitation to enter God's kingdom and enjoy its privileges. And this invitation is God's first act in the application of redemption. Romans chapter 8, 29 to 30. For those whom he foreknow, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, foreknowledge points to what God knew before time, i.e., eternity past. God knew in eternity past who would come to salvation. Then he predetermined to conform those who would come to salvation to Christ's likeness. The calling refers to the general call of salvation that goes out to all humanity. Isaiah 45, 22, turn to me and be saved. All the ends of the earth. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, says the Lord. Not only does the calling refer to the general call of salvation, but it also refers to the effectual calling, whereby God gives us the grace to repent and believe. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 14. It was for this he called you through our gospel so that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Thessalonians 2.14 2 Timothy 1 and verse 9 Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace. 2 Timothy 1.9 See, God's program of salvation began by knowing in eternity past who would come to salvation, then predetermining to conform those who would come to salvation to Christ's likeness, then ushering a general call, 
and an effectual call. Many heard the call, not all responded to the call. The call is only effectual in those who what? Repent and believe, by which he gives us the grace to do that. Now, the program of salvation continues by justifying the believer. Again, Romans 8, 29 and 30. He foreknew, then he predestined, then he what? Called, and those whom he called he also justified. Justification is the legal arrangement whereby God views the sinner as now righteous. This arrangement includes a pardon from sin's penalty. It includes the imputing of Christ's righteousness to the sinner. And along with that salvation program, God also predetermined to sanctify or make holy those who come to salvation. Ephesians 1.4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. 2 Thessalonians 2.13, God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. God not only called us, he justified us, he sanctified us. So, legally, he's pardoned us from sin's penalty. We're not, you know, that means that we're not going to be cast in the lake of fire. And he's imputed Christ's righteousness to us. Because we have the righteousness of Christ, we're now holy and blameless. We're now sanctified. We're made holy. Now, the final aspect of God's salvific program is yet future. These, those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, I love the fact that Paul writes it in the past tense. So the idea, listen, our glorification has not yet happened. But it's written in the past tense to show us that it is guaranteed. Even though it hasn't happened from our perspective, as far as God's concerned, it's a done deal. The glorification of the believer. Now what is glorification? The glorification involves the transformation of our body and the presentation of us as holy and blameless before God the Father. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 52 to 53. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. Now, we're talking about the rapture. The next event on God's calendar is the rapture of the church. It's imminent. It can happen at any time. We don't know the exact day or the exact hour, but we know that it can happen, and it will happen. At that moment, in a twinkling of an eye, that's how quick this is going to be. The last trump is going to sound. The trumpet will sound, and with the blowing of that shafar, guess what? The dead in Christ arise from their graves. Again, in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye. And then, those who are alive, those who haven't died yet, those who are believers who are alive, they're going to be caught up together in the air. So you've got the dead in Christ, those who are believers but are, who died, and those who are living, who are believers, they're both caught up into the heavenlies, and they're going to be changed. Their bodies are going to be transformed. 
Perishable is no longer going to be perishable. It's going to become imperishable. This new body will not be affected by death, by age. Also, notice that the mortal is going to put on immortality. There's no more cessation of life for the believer at the rapture. Colossians 1.22 says, Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. And so at the rapture then, this transformation happens in the heavenlies and we're immediately then taken into the presence of God. And we're presented before God as a holy, blameless, beyond reproach bride for his son, Jesus Christ. Now, if God created a program to save his people, along with the necessary processes to accomplish that program, would he not secure that program? Well, the answer is yes. He would secure it, and he does secure it. This program stands, Romans 9, 11. God's purposes, according to his choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. You see, our eternal security is not based on our perseverance, or our lack of sin. It's based solely on God's program. This promise is exceptionally comforting to believers. Friend, you ought to be comforted knowing that this program that began in eternity past and works out in eternity present, that this program stands. It cannot be undone. And that provides comfort because you know what? Regardless of the situation or circumstance that you find yourself in, God is there. You see, my friends, God does not forsake us in this life, nor will he forsake us in eternity. Hebrews 13, 5, For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. Now, when we talk about this calling, the only means by which we are able to learn more about our calling to salvation is by studying God's Word. 2 Timothy 3, 16-17 All scriptures inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the person of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Again, you want to strike that balance, you've got to begin with the study of God's Word. You've got to find out, first and foremost, what does it mean that I'm saved? See, my friend, if you do not live in God's Word, you cannot, nor will you, find a balance for life. Notice that all Scripture is inspired by God. Let's talk about that for a moment. What is the word all? All encompasses everything, every part. Every, 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 the smallest part to the largest part is inspired by God. So all scripture. So just Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are inspired by God? No. Oh, just Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts? No. Oh, well, the Gospels, Acts, and the Epistles? No. Okay, the Gospels, Acts, Epistles, and Revelation? No. You have God to take all of Scripture, and all of Scripture refers not only to the New Testament, but to the Old Testament as well. In fact, the term Scripture there, graphe, when used in the New Testament, always refers to the Old Testament. Let's keep in mind 
that, the, that at the time Paul's writing 2 Timothy, the majority of the New Testament wasn't even penned yet. First New Testament book written, book of James, A.D. 49. Do you, you know what that means? That if the church began in A.D. 29, we're talking 20 years have gone by before the first New Testament book was written. You know, I find it amazing that the church grew and multiplied and went forth and missions work multiplied throughout the world with the Old Testament. And yet we've got people today, they want to throw the Old Testament out. You can throw it out to your own damnation because your life will never be balanced without all Scripture. Notice all Scripture is what? Inspired by God. That word inspire, theonoustos. Theos, God, noustos, spirit or breath. God breathed. In other words, God revealed, God spoke forth all of the Scripture. He spoke Genesis, He spoke Chronicles, He spoke Malachi, He spoke Matthew, He spoke Jude, He spoke Revelation, and all the books in between. It's inspired by God and profitable. That word profitable, ophelia, means that the Old and New Testaments are beneficial. They're advantageous. They're useful to the believer. Again, believe you, you're going to be lopsided if you always spend your time in the New Testament. I had someone tell me one time, well, the only part of the Bible I really pay attention to are the epistles. I pity them. Because their life is completely out of whack if they're just living on the epistles. You need all of Scripture in order for the Bible to be beneficial, advantageous, and useful to you. Now, let me show you here why the Scriptures are profitable. The scriptures are profitable, they're advantageous, they're beneficial, they're useful to make you adequate, or tias. That is, they make you complete, capable, and proficient. So unless you're studying all of the scripture, you're never going to be complete, capable, or proficient. Second, the scriptures are profitable to equip you for Christian service. That Greek word, exertismenos, means to be outfitted for service. To be given everything one needs to do the work God's called them to do. Third, the scriptures are profitable to provide reproof, elenko. Reproof or elenko is the, a rebuke or the rebuking of a wrong belief or behavior. The scriptures are also profitable for correction. A panorthosis. That is the restoring of something to its correct position. Also, it's profitable for what? Training. Padilla. Training or instruction in godly conduct. You see, my friends, it is the teaching of the doctrinal content of the scriptures that outfits you to serve. Reproof, correction, and instructions are practices that you and I perform with the Scripture. But I want you to notice here what comes first. It says they're profitable for what? Reproof, correction, training. Wait a minute, back it up. First, for teaching. Practice without a doctrinal foundation is nothing more than pharisaical legalism. You want to go out there and, and, and reprove people's wrong beliefs. You want to correct their bad behaviors. You want to train them in godly conduct. But you don't do it without doctrine. Then you are a Pharisee. 
Without doctrine, you will never be adequate or equipped to serve God. And so it behooves us to study the Scripture. You're never going to balance, have a balanced life, especially the, living in, the, in such an unbalanced world. We're never going to have a balanced life without the study of Scripture. The more you know about the Scripture, the more balanced your life is going to be. Let's go back to Ephesians 4.1. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. So, finding balance begins with studying the God's Word. But it also includes, the other half of that, the other side of that, by studying the Scripture is also by suffering for Christ. Again, in order to strike a balance while living in an unbalanced world, there must be a balance between our doctrine and our deportment, okay? So studying the Scripture gives us our doctrine, but suffering for Christ is all about our deportment. And we strike this balance first by seeking to understand our calling, but now the balance is struck by suffering for Christ. In imploring believers to walk worthy, Paul refers to himself here how? As a what? As a prisoner. Why does he mention his imprisonment? He, he mentions his imprisonment to remind us, to remind his original readers of his present suffering. He says that he is a prisoner of the Lord. See, Paul was not only suffering, but he was suffering willingly for Christ. You see, part of the calling to salvation is a call to suffer for Christ. Luke 9.23 And as he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So you answered the call to salvation, you confessed your sins, you placed your faith in Jesus' sacrificial work. His death, his shed blood, his burial, his resurrection. And you confessed his lordship. Great, you're saved. But you know what? Talk is cheap. True disciples are going to be known by their actions. True disciples are going to be known by their actions. See, Jesus says, first of all here, believers must deny themselves. Genuine believers will deny themselves. That term deny, aneomai, means you're going to repudiate, you're going to renounce, you're going to disown something. John Gasmick states that denying oneself is turning away from the idolatry of self-centeredness and every attempt to orient one's life by the dictates of self-interest. See, there's no compromise. You cannot live for yourself part of the time and live for God part of the time. Genuine believers will cease from being self-centered and become God-centered. They will renounce self-exaltation. They'll renounce self-will. They'll renounce self-seeking and instead live to exalt God. They'll live to do God's will. They'll live to seek God's kingdom and His righteousness. That's what it's all about, denying yourself. Second, Christ says you've got to take up your cross. Now, taking up your cross is not putting up with that difficult person or that difficult situation. Oh, this is my cross to bear. Stop it, please. That's not taking up the cross. Taking up the cross is not a spiritual epiphany. It's not a moment of dedication to God. Instead, taking up your cross is an illustration of submission and humility. You see, in Jesus' day, the cross was not an irritation or an inconvenience. 
In his day, the cross was an instrument of a slow, torturous death. And so when Jesus talks about taking up one's cross, he's talking about a slow and painful method by which one dies to their self-interest. It's a daily process. There are no shortcuts. A.T. Pearson once said, getting rid of the self-life is like peeling an onion, layer upon layer, and a tearful process. Taking up the cross takes discipline, spiritual discipline. I'm fearful that many of you lack the spirit, lack spiritual discipline, and I'm even more afraid that some of you don't even want to develop that spiritual discipline. 1 Timothy 4, 7 but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit for only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. We are commanded to discipline ourselves for godliness. What's godliness? Eusebia. A proper attitude. A proper response to God. And discipline. Gumnazo. We get our word gymnasium from that. Denotes rigorous self-sacrificing training. You know, we, ju we just had the Olympics. You know, when you think about the Olympics, the athlete gets in shape. How? By daily training. He doesn't train for a few days or a few weeks, but rather for years. And so, like an Olympic athlete, believer, you and I must train rigorously and sacrificially year after year after year. It's the only path. This discipline is the only path to godly living. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They, they then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it a slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Now, just so we're clear, this process of self-denial is not in opposition to God's grace. We're not adding works to salvation. What we're saying is that salvation works. In fact, self-denial is in line with God's grace. Titus 2, 11 and 12. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. That's what grace demands. You see, grace living isn't licentiousness. Grace living is denying ungodliness. Grace living is denying worldly desires. Grace living is living sensibly, right, rigorously, or excuse me, righteously and godly in this present age. It is God's grace, believer, that enables you to say no to ungodliness, to say no to worldliness, and at the same time to replace those things with, the, with that which is godly and righteous. This is what is known as the mortification of sin. Romans 8.13, If you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Colossians 3, verse 5, Therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, which amounts to idolatry. Mortification begins with your mind. That's where it is, folks. You've got to start with the mind. You've got to deny those sinful thoughts. You've got to forsake and replace those sinful thoughts with thoughts that are good and pure and just. 
Philippians 4, 8 says, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, dwell on those things. And then we deny, we take up the cross, and third, we follow Christ. This is what it means to suffer for Christ. Following means we take the same road of sacrifice, the same road of service that he took. That term follow, akalutheo, is a present tense imperative verb that indicates that the command to follow is a continual process of submitting to his commands and imitating his behavior and conduct. Frederick Louis Godet states, the chart of the true disciple directs him to renounce every path of his own choosing that he may put his feet into the print of his leader's footsteps. Does that describe you? Is that what you're doing? Are you walking in his footsteps? Note the personal aspect of following Jesus. He says, follow me. He didn't say, follow my commands, though that is necessary. Matthew chapter 7, 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will answer. Many are going to say on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Didn't we preach in your name, Lord? Some are going to say, hey, didn't we cast out demons in your name, Lord? Some are going to say, hey, in your name, didn't we perform miracles? And you know what Jesus is going to say? Depart from me. I never knew you. You who practice what? Lawlessness. See, following him is about following his commands, but it's more than that. It's following him. It means to continually obey him as Lord in the context of knowing and loving him as Savior. John Calvin said this, it is very clear that we keep the commandments not by loving ourselves, but by loving God and neighbor. That, that he lives the best and holiest life who lives and strives for himself as little as he can. And that no, one's lot, lot, no one li, lot, yeah. and that no one lives in a worse or more evil manner than he who lives and strives for himself alone and thinks about and seeks only his own advantage. So how about it, believer? Who are you living for? Are you living for yourself or are you living for Christ? It's of the utmost importance that we live a balanced life in an unbalanced world. We must strike a balance between what we believe and how we behave. You know, it is so easy, and, and so many believers without knowing it, or have been swept up unwittingly into moral relativism, into cultural relativism, into situation ethics, and into the behaviorism of our day. And it's simply because they're not properly grounded. That could be you. Ephesians 4.14, As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by the craftiness and deceitful scheming. We must be grounded doctrinally. The world's watching. They're waiting to strike upon any perceived hypocrisy on the part of the believer. And therefore, your living, your deportment must be in balance with the Scriptures. You've got to study the Scriptures, but you've also got to suffer for Christ. We've got to study God's Word. If you don't live in God's Word, you will not live a balanced life. Also, you cannot... Live a balanced life without suffering for Jesus. And again, suffering for Jesus is denying yourself, dying to yourself, and disciplining yourself. There is not a single verse in the Bible 
that will command you to build your self-esteem or to love yourself more. Follow Jesus. Live for Jesus. Don't live for yourself. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, Lord, we thank and praise you for giving us the antidote, for giving us the ability to find balance in this crazy, unbalanced world. A world in which good is evil and evil is good. And yet, Father, you've called us to be different, to be distinct. And you've given us two means to do that, by studying the scripture and by suffering for Christ. And Lord, I pray right now for those that are listening, that Father, if they're big on doctrine but weak in their deportment, I pray, Lord, show them their hypocrisy. Encourage them to keep studying, to keep learning. But Lord, I pray through your spirit, you might urge them to apply what they're learning, to put into practice what they're learning. Lest the world see us as hypocrites. Father, there are some listening, Lord, that that are weak on doctrine, but big on living for Jesus. And yet, without that doctrinal foundation, Father, I question what Jesus they're living for. Certainly not the Jesus of the Bible, because they've rejected the Bible. They're living for a Jesus of their own interests, their own ideals. Father God, if they're truly your child, I pray that you would arouse them to see the true Jesus as, as described in your word. And that, Father, they would study the Scripture and continue to strive to live for Him. Help us all, Father, to find that balance while we live amid an unbalanced world. We pray in Your Son's name. Amen.